This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. Nuclear. Now, is it Crick or Creek? Coyote or Coyote? Sometimes I say library. Welcome to You're Saying It Wrong. I'm Fletcher Powell, and each episode we turn to the people who literally wrote the book on this, sister and brother team Kathy and Ross Petrus, and we'll dive into what we get wrong and sometimes what we get right when we try to speak this weird English language. Okay, we'll get started today with, uh, you guys got an email that brought up an interesting question. Yes, we did. We got an email. I think it was in the Times and a number of other papers, too. But the email basically talks about, uh, and I'm not sure you heard this, um, a professor at Harvard talking about teaching the Scarlet Letter. No, I, I don't. Tell, tell me what's going on. Okay, and this is an English class. And Harvard, you know, as we all know, is like a premier institution of uh, upper academia. And she was teaching the um, Scarlet Letter and said that some of her students were, quote, really struggling to understand the sentences as sentences, like having trouble identifying the subject and the verb. And then our questioner said, what do you think about this? And then she went on to describe the professor saying that students had an orientation toward the present. And, quote, the last time I taught the Scarlet Letter, I discovered that my students were really struggling to understand not only the sentences, sentences, but their capacities are different. And the 19th century is a long time ago. So basically, she doesn't want to teach it. And then the question, the email said, what do we think of this? And let's start with you, Fletcher. What do you think of that? Well, you know, I only know now exactly the words that you've said to me. I don't know anything else about this issue. It's been a long time since I read The Scarlet Letter, probably high school. So I don't quite remember what a sentence from the Scarlet Letter looks like. Uh, mm. So I, just imagining it, I could understand maybe some students having a little bit of trouble understanding what's going on. Now, as far as the sentence structure, uh, identifying the subject and the verb, identifying a verb, uh, that seems problematic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> as I've said a lot of times... Uh, you know, it's hard for me to diagram a sentence. So, you know, at this point, if you ask me, tell me what the subject is, I could probably tell you. I'm going to be honest. When I was in college, if you said, tell me what the subject of that sentence is, I don't know that I could have told you. You know, I would have been like, wait, subject, object. I don't remember which is which. Uh, uh -huh. And so if we're, if we're talking about the diagramming of the sentence, me being able to tell you the different parts, aside from verb, which I learned from Mad Libs, then... <laughs> I don't know that I could have. I don't know that I could have been able to do that. Uh, so I, it, it's hard for me to know beyond what you've said what the real issue is here. Okay, the, I think that it, it sounds more technical than it was. The real bottom line isn't really diagramming a sentence. It's saying that books that were written in the 19th century oughtn't be read now because they're too difficult. It's to, to really boil it down. Don't you think, Ross? That's really the the bottom line here. Uh, I think it's what's. I think it's saying. It's not problematic and it's not dangerous that people are having difficulty doing this. And my inclination is I think that 
university students or anyone really should be learning how to not maybe not diagram a sentence, but to how to like understand a sentence as a sentence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think the Scarlet Letter is prolix. I agree with that. And I think it probably is 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 a more adva- it's more advanced English, so to speak, and it's an older style of English, so it is more difficult. You and I have talked about that, Ross, because you have a tendency to read older books more than I do. I'm I'm more mm-hmm. and and you have said that you get into it. I, I like I hate Henry James. And I, I mean, I, mm-hmm. and I studied him in college. I detest Henry James. I will go to my death hating mm-hmm. Henry James. And I can't read it for enjoyment. But that said, as you've said, if you do read it a lot, you you, you kind of start grokking it because you're there. Yeah. And I, that's, I, I, you said it completely, Kath. And I think that's the problem. I think that if you're studying 19th century or, or 19th century English literature, I think you should strive to get into it. I don't think you should just say, oh, well, they're present oriented. Mm. I, I think that's, I think, the danger. The danger isn't that you're having difficulty. The danger is that you're not striving to understand something in the past. And I think the past is really vital to understand the present. And mm. I think that's one of the problems today that we're dealing with is that we don't understand the past. And in that, we can't understand the present. And there's also, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of fun to be had when you, mm-hmm. you know, I, I guess if the question is, should they teach it? Of course they should. I mean, mm-hmm. in a university, especially you're there to, to learn things and learn how to do things and, and challenge yourself. I mean, you're reading James Joyce too, right? 20th century author, mm-hmm. fine, but not so easy. But, mm-hmm. you know, a year or two ago, I read Middle, Middle March for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I laughed out loud every other page because her writing is mm-hmm. so glorious. I mean, that might be yeah. that might be my favorite book now. And it took me a very long time to get through. It's about 800 pages, but also I am not a fast reader and I tend to get drowsy when I read. And so it, <laughs> it took me a very long time and I could have given up, but I didn't because, you know, when you bear down and and actually see what uh, Elliot is doing, it's it's just glorious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the I, problem, I think, I, Go, sorry, Ross. I didn't want to say something. No, go ahead, Kath. I was just going to say, because there was a... Very well put. Very eloquent. (laughs) Thank you. You're so much like George Eliot, it kills me. (laughs) Um, I was looking at another article after having gotten this one from um, the listener, and it was an opinion column in uh, the New York Times about how English majors, we're talking about English right now, um, is is just falling. It's 5% uh, at Columbia, 5% is a share of English majors. I was an English major. I mean, I should say that at the outset, and I liked being an English major. But they're saying in this piece, which fascinated me, that the new, what with Common Core and stuff, 70% of assigned texts in high school are nonfiction. 70%. Wow. That's like astounding, mm-hmm. isn't that? It just really boggles the mind. Yeah, it's just, it's just a shame. I mean, there's just so much wonderful stuff out there now that's not i i should i should qualify that that's not a statement about the quality of nonfiction because there's some great nonfiction, of course but there's i mean there's such wonder and joy to be had from uh you know fiction from uh, you know many different centuries yeah and also what bothers me is that we we basically are as humans are storytellers we live by stories yeah and I think if we take stories out of out of uh, a curriculum, we're really losing a lot of what makes our humanity humanity. 
I, I think it's really a dangerous. I really get vehement about it. I think it's really dangerous. And I think the other thing is that we're all like it or not, we're tethered to the past. You know, we have parents, we have grandparents, we have great grandparents, we have ethnic identities, we have national identities. All of that stems from the past. And to take the story out of our lives and to take the stories from the past out of us, I think is really dangerous. And it bothered me with, I think what bothered Kathy and, and, and me the most with this state, with this, what, you know, what was written in here was their capacities are different in the 19th century is a long time ago. Yes, it mm -hmm. is. But that doesn't mean that we should learn it and, and listen to it and study it as well. There are things we can learn from this. Yeah, that's... Anyway, moving right along, oh, I guess, Kat, I just realized we're... Well, Fletcher was saying something. Uh, you know, I'm just going to... I'm just also going to be angry for the rest of this episode. So. <laughs> I think we should add a caveat here. Kathy and I both have a book due in two months and we're <laughs> racing to finish it. So if we sound we a little crabby than normal... Contracted <laughs> yeah. for over a year. I have to say, it was contracted over a year ago. Yes. And who just started it? Hello. Yeah. So yes, we're cranky. Speaking of academia, uh -huh. now I'm going to do a very smooth segue. That was nice. Yeah, yeah it was really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, in another email, it was uh, actually it was the guy who had written before Todd that we talked about the last time. Also said that um, I, I really like this quote. He was listening to another podcast, which shocks me that he listens to somebody other than us. Hmm. But one of the guests, a writer, said that growing up, if they read something and didn't understand it, that meant it must be literature. Which I just, <laughs> I just thought that's great. I love that. I Isn't love that, that fabulous? But what he said, though, is he, he takes this a step further now, which I also found fascinating. He said, I'm finding much the same in my studies. He just started a master's in education. And he says, the more I study, I really feel like a lot of the, quote, journals include language that's intentionally arcane as if academians don't really care to be understood. And we thought, you know, Todd, you've got a really interesting point here. So Ross and I started going a little crazy, avoiding writing our book, and looking instead for academic language to see, yes, indeed, it's, it's, it's a language complete to itself. Mm -hmm. Don't you think, Ross? It's, it's not English. No. And we tried, what we tried to do in this, and we'll do a couple with you too, is we tried to translate the ideas that were initially written in academics and academies into third grade, basically into third grade prose, something that mm -hmm. a third grader could easily understand. I have to say, these are examples of overbloated, mostly academic verbiage. And we're just going to ask you, Fletcher, what does this mean in normal, quote, <laughs> English? And then we're going to actually do it for you if you don't get it correct. <laughs> okay, this comes from Art Education Magazine. Uh, it's written by a professor of art education. We're not going to say name names. Here we go. In terms of arting, where the reference condition is not fixed or even known conceptually, but rather something coming to being, what can we hope through our formative hermeneutic <laughs> movement to make the otherness of the arting process more other, more objective in a newer sense and less subjective in the older sense so that the arting process itself speaks more purely. Fletcher? I'm sorry. I, I nodded off there for a moment. I, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> okay. So uh, I, two things. One, I couldn't really get past arting. I didn't know that that was mm -hmm. that that was a thing. Mm -hmm. 
two, I do want to say about academic language that a lot of times I sort of figure that it's written for other academics who you might understand, say, technical language and that sort of thing. <gasps> and so and so sometimes that's, you know, it's understandable that I wouldn't understand that. Uh, great. I'm using understand a lot in that sentence. But this, <laughs> Good. this does not seem to be that sort of thing. <laughs> what? Why? Why would you? Why would you? want to write something like that i just have to say i like ross and i jotted this down ross i couldn't help it ross okay. said after he wrote it he said that this is a guy you'll never want to see at a cocktail party he said not only is he boring he also asks questions <laughs> <laughs> i just loved that <laughs> i must say ross I, I had to give you credit on that i thought it was brilliant <laughs> and i agree with you the term arting was where i really lost it i mean so the, it was the fourth word in the sentence yeah i was just that was when I just hit the seal. Yeah, I was out after that. Yeah. Okay, here's how we rewrote it. Uh, first of all, let's let's go let's go into this now. This has a lot of buzzwords in it. It has arting, which is which is very commonplace in overblown uh, usages. You basically create a new word. Arting mm -hmm. is basically performing art or doing art, but arting sounds more technical. So we have arting, and of course we have process, processes, or process or process. I'm sorry, switching from Canadian to American English here process formative and then we have the old standby hermeneutic hermeneutic is chucked in these things willy-nilly we always see hermeneutic yeah mm -hmm. fletcher do you just quickly do you know what hermeneutics is i can't remember you know what i had <laughs> I, I this goes back to the early days of chat rooms on the internet and some i, I remember arguing with someone or other and they just kept saying hermeneutics hermeneutics and i was like what the heck is going on here no, I, I can't. I can't honestly remember what hermeneutics well, is. Hermeneutics is a good is a good word to use sometimes, but in in many cases it's just sort of. It basically means knowledge. It's the branch of knowledge that deals with interpreting things like literary texts. Yeah. Okay. Mm. But I don't think it's necessary here. We translated this in a word in in a sentence. This is what it says, and we we kept going back and forth. Here's what that article bit said. How do we figure out what art really is? When a lot of times the art isn't done yet, but still being made. <laughs> hmm. That was it. Not an uninteresting question when you put it that way. Mm -hmm. But boy, a very uninteresting when you put it the way that the other guy did. And the question now we have to you is, I agree that sometimes, you were right, sometimes in terms of expertise, you do need technical words and technical usages. In this case, do you think we did did or not? I don't think we did. No, I I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't think it helped. I don't think it added. I mean, I I think it detracted mm -hmm. quite a lot for for me. Now, again, I if if I were steeped in that world like that guy apparently is, would it? I, I don't know. I couldn't say how I would read that sentence. I agree because I think part of the problem is that you're in that world and everybody else is doing it. So you you God forbid you say something clearly. Yeah. You're supposed to bloat it, don't you think? I mean, that's like your job, uh, right? I shared I shared this one with a couple of English professors from University of Toronto, and I, I think first of all we have to say is not all academic writing is like this. A lot of academic writing is quite good and quite clear, and my two test English professors both thought this was bloated and bad mm -hmm. and they felt it was done we, ha we have a discussion later we can go into it but they felt it was done basically to hide nonsensical thought 
and or easy thought to but make it's it not sound... nonsensical thought actually no, I was, in fairness i, 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 I think that's unfair oh okay I, I didn't it, mean it's a legitimate it's a legitimate point it's overblow just like... but it, but it's a minor point it's a quick point it was done to show yourself more intelligent or more intellectual than you really need to be and they didn't think it was legitimate i have a question how long did it take you guys to translate that sentence into or that that thought into that one sentence that you gave me a while. Yeah. <laughs> a while. Yeah. It did take a while. Well, I think the problem with that is because I think you're so hit with arting and hermeneutic and objective in a newer sense and less objective. You, you just sort of, you said you just like were knocked out. I, I, I immediately, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm a lazy person ultimately, I think, because my first act was, was just like, oh, the hell with it. You yeah. know, Ross, Ross, you can do it. I, I'm going to, I'll be back, yeah. you know, because it's just so dense. Let's move on to the next one then. Okay, this is a photographer at a, a gallery in Soho explaining her work. I have several friends who are artists, and I have to confess right now that some of them have passed me, like they said, what do you think of this? And it's a description of their work. And once or twice I was humiliated. I started laughing, and I thought they were joking. So I wrote, like, you know, yeah, ha, 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 zzz. Oh. And they were not joking. <laughs> we should also add that mom, we, our mother was an artist. And she had a tendency to do this as well. Yeah, do you so, remember that, Rose? Because I remember she asked yeah. me a couple times to do that. And I, I thought, this is crap, Ma. And I couldn't yeah, say it. I, I was like, mmm. Not know, her ma. art, but the writing. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, like, okay, here we go. This reminds me of, this reminds us of her mom. Okay, this is, again, photographer explaining her work in her brochure. I juxtapose anticipated with anomalous imagery to create visual analogies discrepancy and contrast in scale are emphasized as I investigate perception and memory. You know, I, I will say j just quickly that maybe one issue is that these people are not necessarily writers and also no, it's exactly. difficult to, to verbalize mm, emotions and, and artistic inclinations. You know, it, it, it's, it's hard to put I that into I actually agree words. with you on that. Yeah. Because, I mean, how do you describe your art? I agree, but I think the one problem we have, and Orwell had said this years ago, and speaking as someone who loves the Latin language, I think we overuse Latin words in, 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 and don't use Anglo-Saxon words. And I think that we're basically more primed as English speakers to, to, ba to get... To gussy it up. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. but, but Anglo-Saxon words work better. We usually hear them. I'm not saying you should always use Anglo-Saxon words to the to the lack of, of Latin, but Latinate words, but usually we understand Lat, uh, Anglo-Saxon words more easily. Well, as you know, Ross, I'm a great believer in Anglo-Saxon words. I mean, from, from the vulgar to the, to the non-vulgar. I mean, truly. And to get visual analogies, as this, as this artist or photographer said, I think it's easier and better to use Anglo-Saxon words in this case when you can. Not always. But in that, in this case, look at the thing, Fletcher, and then we, we'll give you our Anglo-Saxon. But don't you think, Ross, the problem is, as a former kid, I remember that, you think that the fancy words make you sound smarter. I hate you that. Do. That's why I, I fight it. I fought against this all my life. Because yep. a lot of times I remember as a kid writing papers, if I wrote it the way I wanted to write it, which was clear, and teachers were much more inclined to go like, mm, no, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Whereas oh, if, I like, my friends, they were going like, blah, 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 blah. yeah. I juxtapose anticipated with anomalous imagery. So we have anticipated imagery and anomalous imagery, and we're juxtaposing those, apparently, to create visual analogies. Discrepancy and contrast in scale are emphasized. <laughs> so I guess I guess just uh, differences in size 
are Aha, yes! <laughs> Kathy, I, read it now. Perfect, Fletcher. You got it. As I investigate perception and memory. Um, so, I, I, I mean, juxtaposing anticipated images and anomalous images, I don't quite understand that, but that might mean something to, to someone in the art world. There are. Um, she's emphasizing differences in size of, of yes. certain kinds of images. Yes. Very good. Okay, this was our translation. It's pretty close to what you said. We wrote, I like to take pictures that have things you expect to see right next to things you don't expect to see. Ah, that, okay, like to, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> okay, then it's, here's the size. I like to put big things next to little things <laughs> in my pictures. And I think my pictures show us how we all see things and remember things. Yeah, okay. Now, now that... When you use those words, it is more understandable. It also sounds a little patronizing about what her. Yeah, how you think? So, yeah. yeah, I don't think that I don't think that was anybody's goal here. Yeah, um. No. <laughs> <laughs> and in fairness to her, though, I've got to admit, you said before, Fletcher, that part of the problem is describing, you know, describing art and 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 the thing. I mean, it's hard. Yeah, Ross, you and I know it when we have to write things like with well, those things for the stupid publishers' uh, press yeah. stuff, and they go describe, you know, tell us about your book, and it's sort of like it is a good book. <laughs> you know, we worked on the book. It's difficult. It really is. So, in fairness to this lady, our translation really made it sound stupid. Oh, we said we were doing a third grader, but I think what she should have said something was, "I like to I like to compare things in my pictures." You know, different sizes, different shapes, different, different. You know, that sort of thing. I think she should have said. I think that would have been clear and easy. Yeah, I think this could have been written better, but I don't think this is anywhere near as bad as the previous example you gave us. Well, now we come to a noted art critic writing an art journal. <laughs> okay, postmodernism needs to be dealt with in the same manner as modernism. That is, as either inclusive or exclusive. The definition of exclusive postmodernism depends on a conception of exclusive modernism. Exclusive postmodernism wants to invert exclusive modernism and in the process destroy it. Inclusive postmodernism is merely the latest stage of inclusive modernism. That is, <laughs> modernism that encompasses postmodernism. Thus, both exclusive postmodernism and pluralism are opposed to exclusive modernism. But pluralism is broader than exclusive postmodernism, <laughs> since it views art as open in every direction, including that of exclusive modernism. <laughs> okay, well, I, about this one, this was in an art journal, right? You said? Mm. Yeah. Yes. I, uh, this one seems. Personally, I don't really understand what, what is going on here. But those terms seem understandable if this is a, a world you understand. I, those, those don't seem like difficult terms necessarily. You just have to understand what each of them means. I mean, it, it's not fun to read, and it's certainly not fun to read out loud. You, you're saying those same words over and over and over again. But... I feel like if I were someone who was in reading, if I were someone who wanted to read art criticism, uh, not casually, but, you, you know. <laughs> I don't think it's ever casual. Yeah. But <laughs> I don't feel like this is necessarily that hard to understand, probably. Mm -hmm. 
I somewhat disagree with you. And I'm going to use uh, uh, Steven Pinker from Harvard. He was he wrote an article on academies. And he made a point, which I thought was a really good one. First of all, we're not when you write an art, an academic article or an article in general, except for, I mean, perhaps quantum mechanics or whatever. But we're all so specialized that we we shouldn't write only for a tiny subsection of the world. And Pinker goes, I suffer the daily experience of being baffled by articles in my field, my subfield, even my sub subfield. And what his point is really is if we can't understand in at least a tiny bit of expansion, I think we're in trouble. Uh, we're not going to be, um, we're not going to basically be able to communicate except with a tiny subsection uh, of our audience. I think the problem I have though, seriously, is I kind of see what Fletcher's saying though. And I'm, I don't believe I'm saying this because I detest this sort of verbiage, but if you're writing, I mean, yes, you said that Pinker was saying writing for a subset, but he is writing for a subset. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't write that way. I I tend to write in a leaner way, uh, as, mm. as Kathy, as you say, a more muscular way, I guess. Uh, so I wouldn't write this sort of thing. But but you are correct. You he is writing for a subset. This is not for the, the, the consumption of the general world. Like, let's look at the sentence. What do you really need to know? You need to know what postmodernism is. You need to know what modernism is. You need to know what exclusive and inclusive are in in these terms. And you need to know mm -hmm. what pluralism is. That's really all you need to know, right? Mm -hmm. If you know those things, which I don't, but if you know those things, I don't think that sentence is probably that hard to figure out. He's writing for people who know those terms. This isn't something that's appearing in um, in even the New Yorker, I guess, right? It's it's in this, yeah. It's in this art journal. I agree. I, I I hate to say it. I find it like, you know, really irritating. I'm but, just, yeah, but, I'm just trying to look at it from the perspective. I mean, I don't like it either. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah. Not, but like, I wouldn't be reading this. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't be picking up that art journal and reading this. Not that I don't like art, but like, it's just not the sort of thing that I would be doing. But let's look at this statement. What's he really saying here? Well, I have no idea. I think <laughs> I think it's a really banal statement. I don't think it really I'm forgetting. Let's just look it. Let's look on the own the own terms of this article. Forget, forget where we are. Let's just look at it completely. Let's make believe we're art experts and just look at this with the words. Forgetting, we, we have basically a definition of postmodernism, which means something. And we have a definition of exclusive postmodernism, which means basically closed postmodernism. So we have closed postmodernism, and he's saying here, pluralism is broader than exclusive postmodernism. Says it views art as open. That seems to me to be the whole thing. I think the whole article prior, prior to that is useless. What he's basically saying is that exclusive postmodernism is closed. And so what we need to have is pluralism, which is more open, which basically would include exclusive postmodernism because, you know, I mean, it, it, because pluralism is open. I don't think that that is as much technically uh, rigorous as, as sloppy reasoning, logically. I got to tell you, I have problems just because I keep seeing the word modernism, and after a certain point, it means nothing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's my problem with but this. The, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He's basically saying that we that either art is that a modernistic outlook is either open or closed, and then at the end he goes pluralism, which is openism. I mean, to, use, to <laughs> word. Are, you sure, are you sure we're not talking about onanism here? <laughs> <laughs> But Perfect. I'm using a jargon <laughs> term. But openism is bigger than than exclusive than closed. So I don't really I don't think this is as much technical 
as mostly just uh, jargony crap. I'm sorry, but I do. Yeah, it could be. And I think that Fletcher is correct. There can be academic writing that's technical. Although I have to say a Nobelist, or I'm not sure Feynman was a Nobelist or not, but but you know Richard Feynman, the great physicist, said he argued that you could explain most things, including certain aspects that are non-mathematical of uh, quantum electrodynamics in words, in mm. simple words. Mm. And I think to some degree he's correct. And I think Pinker is correct as well. And I do have to say, I just, I really like this um, one uh, John Cassian, who was a uh, Latin writer of uh, a monk Latin writer from the uh, 400s or whatever it was, I don't remember. And I read, read three academic books on it basically talking about his Latin, talking about how he writes. Two of them were very technical. You have to know who Cassian is. You have to know all about Paulinus of Nola, whatever. But they were both written in very good English. One, The, the last one was incomprehensible. And then I read several reviews of it, and several other people agreed, all professors. Mm. So I don't think necessarily even being technical, you have to write this sort of swill, personally. I think you're right, Ross. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, and this is a final. Now, this one fascinated both of us. We're going to request Fletcher. I, I put it into the chat, so you should be able to see it. Got it. Okay, now you look at that. Tell us, what is the subject of this sentence? With the last gasp of romanticism, the quelling of its florid uprising against the vapid formalism, formalism of one strain of the Enlightenment, the dimming of its yearning for the imagined grandeur of the archaic and the dashing of its two sanguine hopes for a revitalized, fulfilled humanity, the horror of its more lasting, more gothic legacy has settled in, distributed, and diffused enough to be sure that lugubriousness is recognizable only as languor or as a certain sardonic laconicism disguising itself in a new sanctification of the destructive instincts, a new genius for displacing culture reifications in the interminable, speaking of interminable, shell game of the analysis of the human psyche, where nothing remains sacred. Right, and that was all one sentence, I can see here. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> if there was a competition, <laughs> this guy would win. <laughs> Okay, l let me look at this again. Okay, with the last gasp of romanticism, what does it do? The, uh, the horror of its more lasting, more gothic <laughs> legacy has settled in. Mm. Um, and no hints, Ross. Uh, that's it. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> with the last gasp of romanticism, the horror of its more lasting, more gothic legacy has settled in. Uh, everything else seems to be uh, illustration on that. You're, you're absolutely correct. Wow. You have found the subject. <laughs> <laughs> that one fascinated us because I'm just going to count. I'm curious how many words are in that sentence. I know. It's really wonderful. 112 words. <laughs> I think someone was just having fun with that one. <laughs> Gosh, I hope so. <laughs> this, though, to me, is exactly what I detest in 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 academic writing just with just like chuck in i mean he talks about florid uprising vapid formalism imagined grandeur of the archaic sanguine hopes revitals it's like this man i'm sorry i'm not using his name never met an adjective he didn't love mm -hmm. obviously mm -hmm. yeah and 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 this is one that you just it just it aches to be stripped down you just really want to flense this and again we go back to i mean speaking against latin i mean again we go back to like do we need all of these reifications uh, do we need all of these uh, 
sanguine. I mean, they're all good words. I'm not denying it, but I think we have too many of them. Yeah. I think mm. we could use a couple of more vigorous Anglo-Saxon words here and there in there. Sprinkle a few in. Fletcher, we have to do one quick one. Okay. And this one just fascinated us. This was intended for a general audience, too. This goes against your uh, oh, strictures okay. about, but it's by an academic. Okay. What all of these parabolic recitals show is that we have no clear idea who Barack Obama is. His essence is encrusted over with surrogate onomastics and radiant designations. That is their function. Every new anagogic label slapped on this media product, every logo and voucher serves to obscure what the package actually contains. Each endorsement of transcendence it's only a sign of clandestine suppression. Wow. And you said this was for a general audience. Yes. Yes. I think the, was this a, it was in the Times or something. Yeah, I don't remember. Oh. Okay, I mean, let, let's just look at this really quickly. Par, parabolic recitals. Okay. Um, onomastics. An, <laughs> anagogic. Uh, I mean, come on. What are you doing? Yeah, see, that's, that's the problem here. And I think this is done to show intelligence or or great learning rather than trying to get a clear idea across. I mean, just curiously, Fletcher, do you know what we looked up anagogic? No, I don't know what that is. And here's a definition. It means of or pertaining to an anagogue. <laughs> <laughs> I have never, ever heard that. I've never heard anagogic or anagogue ever in my life. I happen to know it, but I, you know, I've read ancient Greek for years and it means to, to basically to lead up. Anna is up, and then again is, is to lead or put into motion, to drive forth upwards, to climb or ascend upwards, basically. Okay, so what would an anagogic label be? He says every new anagogue. I'm guessing an upward striving label, like each time it gets better and better, president, you know, like senator, president. I don't know. Wouldn't it have been better than, <laughs> and I, I'm still lost at sur surrogate onomastics as well onomastic is the study of ancient of uh, proper names fletcher be means you know a guy who uh, makes arrows okay so there he's saying that like everybody was talking about that a whole barack hussein obama is that probably what he's referring to then Sur i don't know i, I really honestly don't no i don't i don't understand this even even knowing this one those... i don't understand at all yeah i really don't know and see okay I have and no so, idea and so you uh, us saying this allows the author to say ha ha you dummies right mm -hmm. when, i think so i, I mean whether justified or not i mean that that seems like that's exactly what the author would want out of this yeah like we're the great unwashed yeah. and it's like you hey, don't get it good yeah, you yeah. shouldn't get oh, it you, you don't even understand jerks. what i'm saying how can you say yeah. you, know, <laughs> you yeah. surrogate onomastic person and, it, <laughs> and even if we tried to put this into an academic context who would it be designed for yeah. I can't see it being designed for poli poli you know, political science majors. Mm. I can't, and that's what we're talking about here when we're talking about a politician. I can't really see it being designed for anyone. I, I don't really understand it at all. It makes me want to hit him. It really does. It gets me really irritated. I, this Catherine, is, you're this being is... anagogic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, up yours, Ross. <laughs> You're Saying It Wrong is part of the NPR Podcast Network and is produced by me, Fletcher Powell, in the studios of KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. 
Kathy Petrus records from her home in Granada, Spain. Ross Petrus records from his home in Toronto, Ontario in Canada. Our digital team is Beth Golay, Jordan Kirtley, and Carly Cooper. If you like what we're doing here on the show, please tell everyone you know and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast platform of choice. If you have a question for Kathy and Ross, you can tweet it at us. We're at YSIWpod. Kathy and Ross are at K&R Petrus. I'm at Fletcher underscore Powell. Or you can email me at Powell at KMUW.org or email them at K&R Petrus at gmail.com. The book, You're Saying It Wrong, was published by 10 Speed Press, and you can find that and Kathy and Ross's other books pretty much anywhere you get books. We recommend your local independent bookstore. And a number of their books are also available on audiobook, read by the authors themselves. Kathy and Ross are always up to something. You can find out more about what they're doing at their website, kandrpetras.com. That's K-A-N-D-R-P-E-T-R-A-S.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks.